the thing is that every time you're asked a question, you have to make a decision. Um, and so here's my question for you this morning. I want you to turn to one of the people around you, and I want you to, to have a little chat and to, to decide together how many decisions do you think the average adult makes in a day? Uh, what's the average number of decisions you think that an adult makes in a day? Anyone brave enough to shout it out? So 1,000, 3,000, loads is a little bit on the vague side, Liz. Come on, we need a number here. Kieran? 10,000. Any advance on 10,000? 2 million, okay. Anyone feel like they make 2 million decisions a day? (laughs) Okay, so according to what I could find in, in my research, this is what the, what the experts supposedly say. A young child, on average, makes around 3,000 decisions a day. The average amount of remotely conscious decisions that an adult makes in a day is 35,000 decisions. That's a huge amount of decisions, isn't it? Did you realize you were working so hard every day? It's, uh... The thing is that whether those decisions are big or small... You know, are the decisions that we make, they all add up and they play a huge role in where you find yourself right now. Every decision that you make becomes a permanent part of your story. You know, our greatest successes and our greatest regrets in life can all be traced back to decisions that we've made. You know, imagine we can all think of a few bad decisions that we've made over the the years that we've been around. You know, maybe uh, we'd like to go back and unmake some of our decisions. You know, maybe we've made bad relationship decisions or bad purchasing decisions in how we've we've used our money. Maybe bad decisions in who or what we've allowed to, to influence us. Or bad decisions when it comes to words that we've used in a discussion slash more like argument that we've had with our husband or wife. I know I can often make bad decisions in those moments. You know, we can all make bad decisions, and the reality is that the decisions that we make aren't always easy, are they? You know, one of the things that I think can make decisions so tricky is that we rarely seem to know what actually hangs in the balance with that decision. In fact, sometimes we only discover what hangs in the balance. We only discover the implications of the decision that we've made days, weeks, months, years after we've made it. In fact, it can even be the next generation that are the first people to discover the consequences of our decisions. To help you understand what I I mean, think about how different your life would have been if your parents or your grandparents had decided just a few things differently. You know, their decisions for better or worse determine the trajectory of your life. In fact, their decisions determined if you even had a life. Yet even though we rarely get to, to know what or who hangs in the balance with the decisions that we've made, it doesn't change that all of our decisions have consequences. And sometimes there are consequences not only from the decisions themselves, but there are consequences from uh, the way that we go about making the decision or consequences from the the extent that we'll go to to prove that we're right in our decision. You know, we make thousands of decisions every day. You know, the decisions that we make are important and they have consequences. You know, so we need to understand God's ways for how we are to go about our decisions and the importance of the commitments that we make. 
Now, we've been taking some time recently to, to look at the book of Joshua. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be looking at, at Joshua chapters 9 and 10. And what we find there is that the Israelites make a big decision for which there are big consequences. And so we're going to see what it is that we can learn from them. Before we have a look at these chapters, though, in Joshua, let me just explain a, a little bit of the backstory. Now, the Israelites, they've, they've come out of slavery. They've come out of Egypt, and God has promised to take them into a land of their own, a land flowing with milk and honey. The only complication is that this land already has some people in it. And these people that are there have lived for the last 400 years in rebellion against God doing some pretty horrific things like child sacrifices and all sorts of different stuff. And so God tells the Israelites, when they go into the promised land, they are to wipe out all of the people who are already there, because if they don't, these people will lead them astray and cause them to rebel against God in the same way that they're doing. And as we read in Deuteronomy how God gives them these instructions to wipe out all of the people and that they're not allowed to make any treaties with them. But if people, he says, if they come from far away, if they're from outside of the promised land, the land that I've given to you, then you can seek peace with them. And you can make treaties with them. And you can be at peace with those people. And so the Israelites, they enter the promised land and they conquer Jericho and they conquer the city of Ai, as we've already been talking about in the last few weeks. And word is spreading about what's happening, and it, and it reaches the other city-states. And so these other city-states, they, they decide it's only a matter of time before they come to us. So, so they gather together, and they decide they're going to make this alliance to stand against the Israelites. Their common enemy. All apart from a group of people called the Gibeonites, who make a big decision. They decided not to join the alliance, but to come up with their own plan for how they can avoid being destroyed. And this is where we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 9, verse 3. It says, however, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. They went to, then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. You know, the Gibeonites were clever. They've done their homework. They know that if they can persuade the Israelites that the reality is they're not really just eight miles northwest of the city of Jericho, which is where they really are, but actually instead of that, they're from this far off land, then they might be able to persuade them to sign a peace treaty with them. And so the story goes on. The Israelites said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? And notice in a moment, they don't actually answer either of those questions. They're very careful how they answer it. There's no, nothing explicit about who they are or where they come from. It says, they answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sion, king of Heshbon and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them, 
and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. And then in verse 14, we've got the key verse of the whole story. It says, the Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Now, the Israelites have a big decision to make, and they're careful. They checked the bread. They tested the evidence. They did all of the humanly sensible things and wise things that you would think that they should do. But they did not stop to inquire of the Lord. And so a peace treaty was made. And let's see what happens next. So it's three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephara, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but... Let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Now what's significant here is that we learn something not only about making decisions, but about the importance of the decisions and the commitments that we make. You see, in our culture, if someone deceived you and tricked you into making a commitment... What would most people say you could do with that commitment? You could throw it out the window. You could rip it up. You could ignore it. It matters nothing. You were tricked into it. You didn't know what you were committing to. Now you know that it's a bad decision. You can just walk away. But Joshua doesn't do that. He's made a bad decision, but he's still committed to it. He's still given his word that he will do it. And he doesn't want to add to his failure to pray, his failure in making a bad decision... To add to that a lack of integrity and dishonesty. And so Joshua lets them live. But with consequences. And the consequences that they're to be laborers for the Israelites. The amazing thing though I think is what happens in the next chapter in chapter 10. You see the other kings of the city states. Understandably they're not very happy about what the Gibeonites have just done. They're not very happy about the fact that the Gibeonites who have a city which is even more powerful than Ai. Have just joined their enemies. And so they joined together to attack the Gibeonites. And because of the treaty that Joshua has just made, he's faced with another big decision. Does he abandon the Gibeonites and celebrate their destruction? These are the guys who have just deceived him, and this is a really easy way to get out of his commitment that he's just made and be free from all of those consequences. Or does he honor the commitment that he's made, even though there's now an even bigger cost to it? And this is what we read in verses 7 to 14. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, 
Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makkedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. And more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the, day of the Lord, uh, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. The amazing thing that I find here is not only that Joshua jumps to the defense of the Gibeonites who have just deceived him, but even more incredibly, despite the beginnings of deception and bad decisions, God steps in as well. It's almost as though God is is making it clear to Joshua, you messed up. You should have asked me about the decision that you had to make. But I'm glad that you're keeping your word. You're honoring me now by keeping your word. And so I'm going to deliver you. And what we read is that in the most miraculous ways, God fights not only for the Israelites, but for the Gibeonites as well. And when the start of this whole process was deception and bad decisions going against what God had told the Israelites to do, I just marvel that this is the way that the story ends. So what can we learn from this about making decisions and the importance of the commitments that we make? Well, one of the things that we learn is that it's easy to make mistakes. And I think often the hardest decisions and the ones where it's easiest to make mistakes are the kind of surprise decisions where you're put on the spot like Joshua was. It was something unexpected. Somebody comes up to you, they put you on the spot and you've got to make a decision there and then. It's easy to make a mistake in that kind of a moment. You know, some decisions are predictable and we see them coming and we've got time to research and to pray and to ask people's advice. But it's the surprise decisions that are hard. And can cause us so many problems. The decisions were made when it's were unexpectedly put on the spot. And we feel under pressure. And like we, we can't wriggle out of it. And I think it's in those times that we're most likely to make a commitment. That we wish we hadn't made. And so when it comes to making decisions, I want to talk about three principles with you. And to make it easy, I've, I've kind of tied these to something that hopefully you, you were all taught when you were young, when it comes to crossing the road. What were you taught when you were ta- young and you were crossing the road? You have to stop, look, and listen. Very good. You remember it. Well done. You all stay safe out there. So the first thing that we need to do when it comes to making decisions is to stop. To take time out And not bow to the pressure to make a decision in the moment. 
You know, it's to say to the person, that all sounds great and makes good sense and, and I like it, or I'm not really sure, but either way, can I let you know tomorrow? You know, like I said earlier, you often have no idea what hangs in the balance with the decision that you're making. You know, how valued it might be for a person for you to to prioritize them and to just give up an evening to go and, and spend with them and the difference that that might make for them in that moment. Equally, it might be that you don't realize as you make that snap decision what the implications are going to be for, for your wife as suddenly... She's left on her own, and really, she needed you in that time. You know, nearly every decision that you make can wait 24 hours, or it can at least wait an hour or two. Even if the person in front of you doesn't feel like that, and they want an answer there and then. So the first thing that we need to learn to do is to stop, because when we stop, it buys us time to look and to listen. And saves us from making a lot of bad decisions. The next thing that we need to do then is to look. And by looking, I mean always get the facts. Never leave this step out. It's easy to make assumptions, but never leave this step out. You see, one of the key ways that God wants to guide you and to lead you and to help you through the decisions that you make is by using the brain that he gave you. And yet for some of us, more often than we'd like to admit, we we miss this part of the process. We have a decision to make and we feel good about it. And so we act on it. Without ever having taken the time to check the facts. And actually, even more dangerous than that, we can sometimes make excuses for acting in that kind of way by over-spiritualizing the decision. You know, it's so important that we don't miss the third part and we don't take time and we, we, we don't miss out on taking the time to, to listen and inquire of the Lord. But equally, there's a danger of a, a kind of hyper-spiritualization that neglects the looking. And when that happens, what happens is we can find ourselves feeling good about something and so we start talking about how it's a God thing and he's opening doors when really it's just something that we feel good about and we want to do. But that doesn't sound like a a very good way for making a decision. So instead, I'll make it sound better. And it gives me an excuse not to check the facts. You know, Joshua may have messed up on the listening part, but it doesn't mean that we should miss what he got right. And we see it time and time again. You know, here Joshua checks the evidence of the, the Gibeonites. But when he was facing having to take the city of Jericho, he didn't just, didn't just pray. He also sent out spies to go and look at the city and to get the facts about what it was that was in front of him. And when it comes to looking, not only do we need to check out the facts, which is fairly obvious, but actually there's another thing that we need to do which can be easily missed. We need to check out our own assumptions. You know, when I, I look back on the wrong decisions that I've, I've made more often than not, there have been times when I thought I've had the facts and I've taken time to pray and ask God about this decision. But the decision was still a bad one because I'd made assumptions and I hadn't taken time to check those assumptions out. Maybe someone asked me to, to help with a, a project and I've just assumed they mean the same thing by the word help that I mean by the word help and helping means that I'm going to be helping and they're doing most of it. 
In reality, what it means is, here's a project, you go away and do it. And that's something very different that I haven't allowed time for. You know, when we make decisions without taking time to to stop and look and listen, we generally assume that people see things the same way that we do, they mean things by words the same as we understand the word to mean, and and they share the same values that we have, so it's going to all have the same kind of basis, and you know what, often that's not the case. So we need to take time to not only check the facts, but to check out our own assumptions. And make sure that we use the brains that God has given us to understand everything that we can about the decision that we're making. So we stop, we look, and the last thing that we need to do is to listen. And this is the one where Joshua messed up, and it all went wrong. And he ended up making a a bad decision. And here's the thing, just as some of us are wired more on the kind of spiritual side, and so there's this danger that we might, might pray and just make assumptions on the facts, others of us are wired more on the practical side of things, and the danger is that we just check out the facts like Joshua did with the, with the bread, and we feel the clothing, and it all checks out, and the evidence stacks up, it makes sense, it's logical, and so we just assume that it must be okay. And we don't bother checking with God. But it is so important that we never leave this step out. Now, even when the facts seem to make it unnecessary, now the facts might all line up and point in a particular kind of direction, but God may have a plan and a way forwards that doesn't line up with our human wisdom. And if we don't talk to him about what that looks like, we'll never know it, and despite our best intentions, we'll make bad decisions and we'll get it wrong. Coming to God and taking time to listen protects us from getting it wrong. And it protects us from being deceived. You know, sometimes that deception might come through other people like it did with the Gibeonites for Joshua, with their fabricated evidence and their flattery of them. But I think, do you know what? The the biggest danger of deception actually comes from our own hearts. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. And if we fail to take time to either look or to listen, we'll find times when we deceive ourselves. I know I've had times like that. You know, we deceive ourselves either because what we we want doesn't stack up with the facts and the the things that the people around us are advising us. And so we make excuses for why it's okay because we we feel so good about it and and it it kind of, we've just got this desire for it and it brings us this kind of pleasure or it satisfies us in this kind of a way. And because we feel good about it and all of those kind of different things are happening, then surely it must be okay with God too. If it feels so good, how can it possibly be wrong? And we persuade ourselves that we know that the Bible says this or that. But we feel good about it and we're at peace about it. And so surely God must be in it. And there's an exception for us in our moment, in our situation. 
Or maybe deep down we know that it's not what God wants for us, but we argue that it must be okay because of all of the facts. Everyone else is doing it. There's all this kind of evidence of worldly wisdom that, that this is the right kind of way to act and it must be fine and everybody, everybody says, says it's okay. So maybe it was all just cultural and contextual from back then and I think times have changed. It's different now. It's okay now. So often what happens is that we end up making bad decisions because our heart has deceived us into neglecting either looking or listening. So we can simply do what we want. And I see it happen time and time again. We neglect looking by ignoring the facts or the advice of the people around us or the assumptions that we've made or we neglect listening by failing to check what the Bible has to say about it. Or to take time to pray and wait and see what the Holy Spirit is wanting to speak to us. So when it comes to decision making, stop, look, and listen. And one last thing just to add as a bit of an aside on this. Having done that, if you make a decision on that basis and you step out and you're obedient to God and you do what you feel is right before him... And down the line, you find yourself in a valley, and things are hard. Let me encourage you that that doesn't necessarily mean you've taken a wrong turn. It can be easy to assume that when when God is leading us, everything will be wonderful, and there will be butterflies and roses everywhere. You know, we'll have open doors and green lights the whole way through. But you know, that's not always the case. The truth is that God's leading doesn't mean that it's all easy. But it does mean that it all works out. And that we can trust him. Even if along the way there are some valleys. So don't assume that a valley means you've taken a wrong turn. But having said that, if you didn't start out by stopping and looking and listening, then you probably have. So having made a decision, the second key thing that we learn from Joshua is once you've made a commitment, keep it. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Once you've made a commitment, keep it. And you know, that's easy when we're pleased with the decision. But when we change our minds or we realize we've made a mistake or a better option comes along down the line, it's not so easy then, is it? And yet, here's the thing. A foolish commitment is still a commitment. Joshua made a foolish commitment. The people of Israel wanted to get out of it. They grumbled against the leaders. But Joshua was determined not to make a second mistake. And so he sticks with his commitment. And the amazing thing that we see is that not only did Joshua keep his commitment, but the people of Israel kept it, even though they grumbled. And even God kept it. You know, despite the beginnings of deception and failure, four times in chapter 10, we read about how God steps into the story and helps them to keep their commitment. This is what we read in Psalm 15, verse 4. Psalm 15 is a description of who may dwell in God's presence and live on his holy mountain. And in verse 4, we read that such a person is one who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. That's a challenging verse, isn't it? One who keeps an oath even when it hurts, even when it costs us. 
You know, the world around us would tell us if you didn't realize what you were getting yourself into and now the cost seems too great and it hurts, then get out. Drop it. Change your mind. In fact, the world would tell us if you didn't know what yourself getting, you were getting into and even if you did know what you were getting yourself into and a better option comes along down the line that you'd just rather do, then drop it. Change your mind. And yet this integrity of following through on our commitments is so important to God that he puts it in a description of what it looks like to be one of his people. Now being people of integrity is so important. And it starts with little stuff. With being where we say we'll be and doing what we say we'll do. Because the reality is that when it seems like the decision we've made is no big deal and it can be easy in that moment to compromise, but every time it's a window into our character. And it's a practice session for being people of integrity when it really counts. You know, when we prioritize keeping our commitments in the small things, we are making being people of integrity so central to who we are that that when challenges come along and the cost is big and our decisions really matter, we've practiced handling it right and so we stand firm. You know, and I know how easy it is to hold plans and commitments lightly, but I want to so build into my character and my heart the importance of being a person of integrity that when it's put to the test and things get squeezed, I don't crumble. I want to lay a foundation where no matter what offers come along or how inconvenient it is, as Jesus says, my yes is yes and my no is And the amazing thing is that we discover in this story with Joshua is that when we do that, God honors us. And part of the story that is such an encouragement to me is how God works even in the midst of our bad decisions. Isn't that encouraging? That we can get it wrong and we all get it wrong sometimes and there are consequences when we do, but one of those consequences is never that God abandons us. In the midst of a bad decision, in the midst of getting it wrong, if we will follow Joshua's example and own up and admit our mistake, and then we endeavor to do all that we can to be people of integrity and we bring it all to God, then he is with us. He is for us. He will help us. Let me encourage you, if you've been weighed down by a bad decision that you've made, that when you own it, and you admit it, and you come to God with it, He is able to work for your blessing and to accomplish his purposes, even in the midst of your bad decision. Isn't that encouraging? So it might be that you're here this morning and you know you have a decision to make. Or you know that you have a tendency to make decisions too quickly and make mistakes. And if that's you, then I want to encourage you that when it comes to your decisions to stop, to look, and to listen. And once you've made your decision, once you've made a commitment to be a person of integrity and to keep it, stick with it, even when it costs you and even when it hurts. It may be, though, that you're struggling with a decision or a commitment that you've already made where you know you got it wrong. 
Maybe you look back with regret and wonder how things might be now if only you'd made a different decision then. Maybe you've been beating yourself up about the decision or maybe you're just aware that you got it wrong and so you've resigned yourself that you've got to live with the consequences for the rest of your life and you're going to miss out because of your bad decision. And if that's the case, then I want to encourage you that God does not abandon you because of a bad decision. God loves you. He is for you. And as you come to him and you admit your mistake, he has everything needed to be able to bless you in the situation where you find yourself now. And in the midst of what it is that you've committed yourself to. Isn't that amazing? Our mistakes might be embarrassing, but God can work in the midst of our mistakes for our blessing and to accomplish his purposes.